0: Well, we're back into the Gospel of John this morning after a brief, I was going to say respite, that's probably not the right word, but uh, after a break last Sunday morning when we were again looking at some of the values um, that we share as a congregation together. And uh, this morning we're into chapter 11 and the whole focus of the story is based in the little village of Bethany, I suppose if there was anywhere that Jesus would call home, it was probably Bethany. It was there that he hung out. It was there that he went back time and time again to be fed and to relax and to unwind and to be with people that he loved. In fact, in John chapter 11, it specifically tells us that Jesus loved this family made up of Mary Martha and Lazarus. It says Jesus loved Mary, that Jesus loved Martha, and that he loved Lazarus. And so we're looking at the story this morning, which on the outset probably looks a little bit sad as well, because a message is sent from Bethany to Jesus saying, Lazarus, the one that you love is sick. And you would imagine that Jesus would immediately drop everything and come running to Bethany to see if he could make a difference, at least to be with the sisters in the midst of the situation. But Jesus doesn't. He carries on doing what he's doing for a number of days. And during that time, Lazarus' situation deteriorates. And then Lazarus ends up dying. And it's that point that I want to take up the story this morning. And so we're reading from verse 17 of chapter 11. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and said to Mary, the teacher is here and is asking after you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up And went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jew said, See how he loved him. (laughs) But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we know that as we think about this story this morning, it's a story that will impact many of us at a very deep and personal level. We recognize that many of us have been in a situation where we have faced loss of one type or another. And there's times we've asked questions and not really found any answers. But we pray that as we come and listen and reflect on this passage this morning, that you will draw close to us and that by your grace, you will speak into our hearts, that we might sense your embrace, that we might know that even in the midst of our pain, You are one who draws alongside us. So help us to understand what this passage is saying, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, with our whole being. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Do you know, I'm not going to give you a simple solution to how to grieve successfully this morning. Do you know, four simple steps to Christian grief. Or how to do grieving in 40 easy days. Do you know, that would be ridiculous. Because everyone's story is different. To one extent, whenever we grieve, it's very personal to each and every one of us. Grief is... I suppose what we feel whenever we're coping with the loss of someone or something that is really significant to us. It might be the loss of a a relationship, it might just be a relationship that has gone sour. And we know that we have lost something that once upon a time was really special. It might be the loss of a friendship or even just the loss of a job. A job wherein we found our identity and as a result of losing that job there's a deep sense of almost despair in our innermost being. I remember even for my dad it was a loss of independence. But I sense that that loss when someone close to us dies is perhaps the hardest of all. The loss of someone we love is surely the most difficult thing to cope with. And it isn't just the loss of the person. It's the loss of a future that we had mapped out for us together. Things that we had planned to do together. Things that we shared. Things that we talked about. Dreams that we had as we looked into the future. And not only has the person gone, but so much of what we had anticipated in the future was taken with them. And as I said, we all deal with it differently, don't we? Some people are just very angry, almost from the very outset. Some people shut down and don't want to say anything about how they're feeling at all. Some people just need other people around them, especially in those early weeks. They just want to know that there's other people that care, other people that support, other people that comfort them. Other people do want to be near anybody. They just want to be on their own and have their own thoughts and their own reflections. Some people just want to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Other people can't even remember what normal is. But whatever it is, we deal with it differently. Some people end up descending almost into a dark night of the soul where the future just looks black and uncertain. And they can't imagine ever enjoying life again. Other people feel that they're doing okay. That they're managing quite well. And then suddenly they are tripped up when they least expect it. There is no normal way to grieve. There is no right way to grieve. But within this passage this morning... I just want to make three observations that I hope will help each one of us as we try and cope with the grief that we're facing at the moment or the grief that we certainly will face in the future. It doesn't matter how young we are or how old we are. We will all face the loss of something or the loss of someone who is special to us. And how do we deal with that? I'm not quite sure. But I think there are three things in this passage that at least help us to understand. The first thing, and perhaps the thing I'll spend the longest time on, because it's something which is, on the whole, I think, neglected within our churches, is that it's okay to get angry with God. God can take it. Jesus can take our pain. So in verse 22 we read that Mary comes to Jesus. And she has lots of questions. Because Lazarus was sick. And they told Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, was sick. And even though you had spent so much time with us, and even though we knew that in some way we were special to you and you were special to us, yet for whatever reason you decided to delay your coming to us. But she ends up coming to him. And she falls down at his feet. Perhaps in despair. She knows that she needs to talk to him. She knows that there are things that she wants to say to him. And she knows that probably now more than ever, she does need to be with him. But as soon as she meets him, the one big question comes out of her heart. Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Where were you, Jesus? Jesus when we needed you most. Why didn't you come sooner? And perhaps in the back of her mind, she thought of all the ways in which they had attended to the needs of Jesus. Perhaps she had reflected over time of the ways in which they had gone out of their way. Not only to look after Jesus, but the entire entourage of his disciples when they turned up unexpected. And now at this point of real need, Jesus seems to dilly-dally and come to Bethany at his leisure. As if the sickness of Lazarus wasn't top of his priority list. And we all have those questions, don't we? Sometimes as ministers, we hear you verbalizing those questions. But sometimes, as evangelical Christians, we are afraid to voice them in case the minister's embarrassed or in case others' Christian friends think that we're not trusting God sufficiently or whatever. But how many times have we said, if only, if only I hadn't have let him do that, if only I had have taken this action or that action perhaps this wouldn't have resulted. If only the diagnosis had been made sooner, and why wasn't it? All the ifs and the questions and the whys, they're there at the very heart of who we are in the midst of these situations. And then, of course, at times we ask those same questions to God, just like Mary did to Jesus. Jesus, you know that I love you. You know that for the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, I've given my life to serve you. I really haven't asked that much. And now, at this crucial moment in my life, you seem distant. Or you seem powerless. You seem unable to intervene. Why? If only. And in this story here, Jesus doesn't do anything. He actually doesn't offer any platitudes or even share a little verse from the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't do anything like that. He just takes her pain, he just listens. To her questions. Some of you will be familiar with Simon Thomas. And uh, Simon was a young TV presenter on, um, uh, what do you call the children's program? Blue Peter for a number of years. And uh, then afterwards moving into Sky News. And uh, again, very well known on on television. He was married to Gemma, and uh, they were both Christians, and uh, both trying to live their life the way that God wanted them to. And uh, Gemma was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer. And three days after the diagnosis, the consultant told him, She's only got a few hours left to live. Three days after the diagnosis. And he sat with her that first night, which ultimately would be the last night, in the hospital room. And he said, whenever morning came, there was a sliver of hope. I knew that the brain could repair itself, he says. I knew that perhaps the bleeding might stop and there might be some hope. So I prayed time and time again, I prayed, asking God to heal her. He says in his blog, I simply kept laying my hand on Gemma's head and saying, God, please, I've read about your healing. I've even been at some churches where I've seen you heal people. Stop this bleeding. I don't want Ethan, their little boy, to grow up without a mummy. But later that night, when he left the hospital, he says, I've never shouted so loudly as I shouted at God that night. I don't understand why he didn't intervene. I don't think I'll ever find out. But if God is who I think he is, he's big enough to take me ranting at him. If God is who I think he is, he's big enough to take my ranting at him. Because if I take my faith out of the equation, then nothing makes sense to me. This doesn't make sense, and life doesn't make sense. He goes on in his story, in his blog, to Tell about Ethan after the funeral, and Ethan is talking to his teacher, and he says to his teacher, "I've got a really long time to wait before I see Mummy again." And he added the rest of his life. But Simon says, "I have to trust God in the middle of this. This is not blind faith. This is real faith and sometimes that means stepping out into the unknown. It's okay to get angry with God or as Simon puts it, it's okay shouting and screaming at God at times. God is big enough to take it. Or another example, a young pastor from Northern Ireland pastor of a growing church in in Lurgan. And he's now, I think, heads up the 24-7 prayer movement in in Ireland. And uh, perhaps one of the most significant books I've read in the last six months, this book here, it's on the screen, Luminous Dark. And uh, it's again his story. You know, just married and his young bride of 23 succumbing to cancer. And again, he cries out to God and says, God, where are you? Why have you allowed this to happen? And so again, he, he writes, during the past week, for the first time in my life, I have had a very real experience of being disappointed with God. I have worked through this a little as the week went by, but it's such an unfamiliar distant and heartbreaking place to be. As with Simon, I know that God can handle this. But it hurts me so much to say it. It hurts me because this is the God I have loved for when I was a boy. This is the God who I've come to experience as Abba, my heavenly Father, whose love I have experienced intimately in the depths of my soul. And for the first time in my life this past week, I felt genuinely disappointed in him. And then further on in the books, he talks about the silence of God. And yet, even as he talks about that, he discovers the reality of God even more deeply in the midst of the silence. But he finds so much comfort from reading the Psalms. And even many of those Psalms that David is crying out to God finish with a little verse saying, but those that trust in the Lord will... But there are Psalms that don't finish like that. And other parts of the Old Testament scriptures that don't have those words of comfort and those words of hope. And so in the likes of Job 30, I shout for help, God, and get nothing, no answer. I stand to face you in protest and you give me a blank stare. Or from Lamentations, Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. Psalm 22. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Psalm 44. Get up, God. Are you going to stay sleeping all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to me? Why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? I suspect many of us have felt like that. God, why are you burying your head in the pillow? And it feels that you don't even seem to care. Just two stories of people who like Mary come to God and are angry and are shouting and are screaming and are looking for answers. Alan Emerson talks about learning to lean into the pain. But it took a long time. And there are no simple answers and no easy journey. But I want to say this morning it's okay to get angry with God. It's okay to ask those questions. We might never find out the answer to those questions but it's okay to ask them. God is big enough to take it. The second observation I want to make and And perhaps the most important in some ways, certainly for me personally, is that Jesus enters into our grief. And so in verses 33 to verse 35, the story continues. Mary cries out unto Jesus. And Jesus sees her weeping and the Jews also weeping. He's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. Isn't it funny how, I mean, these verses are only human construction, but isn't it funny how the smallest verse, at least in our English translations of the Bible, the shortest verse, I think carries one of the most profound truths of the whole of Scripture, God is not beyond emotion. God is not unmoved by the situations in which we find ourselves. He doesn't stand apart from the pain that we all face. He comes and he weeps alongside us if there's one aspect of Jesus that I find attractive time and time and time again, if there's one verse, if you like, that makes me never, ever want to give up my faith, it's this profound and simple little truth. Jesus weeps with us. In our pain. Jesus doesn't just stand beside Mary. With his hands in his pockets. Embarrassed and not knowing what to do. In one sense he doesn't do anything. Certainly not at this point. But he does weep. He enters into the pain. And he weeps with her. A few years ago. I led a group to visit the Holy Land, and in fact, some of the folks are here this morning. And uh, one of the things that moved me the most uh, was this little church. It's sort of halfway up the Mount of Olives, and uh, you'll see it's built in the shape of a teardrop, and it's called Dominus Flevit, which simply means, The Lord Cries. It's to recall that time on the Mount of Olives where Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he cried for the people of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to take you like a chicken or a hen on the chicken under his wings, but you would not. And again, it wasn't only because God really met with us as a group in that little chapel. that I had the joy to pray with many people from our little group who were just broken and in tears as we shared something about the humanness and the vulnerability and the compassion of Christ. It's a very special little place. But reminds us again that we have a God who weeps with us in the midst of our pain. But it also says there in verse 33 that Jesus deeply moved in spirit and in troubled. Again, it's a very strong, strong word. Jesus is troubled in his soul. If it was used in the context of animals, it's almost like horses snorting. It's that sort of sound. But whenever it's used of humans, it's normally an expression of anger or outrage. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. He's he's outraged at what he sees and what he's experiencing. Why? Is it, as some suggest, because he now has to perform a miracle and raise Lazarus from the dead and in some way he feels this has been thrust upon him and uh, it sort of upset his itinerary. It really wasn't what he had planned for the next week. Or, Or is he just... Annoyed at the hypocritical grief being expressed by some of the Jews who had gathered to mourn? Or is he outraged at the unbelief that's even there within Martha herself? But I think most commentators say, what was it that outraged him? What was it that really upset him? He was enraged because the death of the one that he loved, brought home to him in his own consciousness the evil of death itself, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny, its awful consequences among those who were left behind. In Mary's grief, he sees the misery of the whole human race, And in his anger, he wants to express how horrible that situation really is. He's outraged not against the Jews, not against Mary and Martha. He's outraged against the evil one. He's outraged against death itself. That's the object. Of his wrath. It's interesting that this same word is used of Jesus whenever he's in Gethsemane, and he's wrestling with his own death and and Calvary, and it says he was troubled in spirit. Deep, 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 poignant word. And yet John never actually talks about Gethsemane in his gospel. And many commentators would suggest that in some ways. Standing around the tomb of Lazarus was John's Gethsemane, where Jesus faced up to the reality of death and what it meant and why he needed to set his face toward Calvary. So we find that Jesus is able to take whatever we throw at him. We notice, secondly, that Jesus enters into our pain and is outraged at what death brings into our world. And thirdly and finally, he also wants to release us from the bonds of despair. And so he goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. This man is no longer dead. He's alive. But he's still bound with the marks of death. And Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You see, Jesus ultimately conquered death and hell and Calvary. In some ways, this story is a foretaste of his own resurrection. A reminder that ultimately, death doesn't have the final say. This I am saying, another saying which is so crucial within the Gospels. I am the resurrection and the life. Easter is coming. There is hope. And even though we will live with the effects of death until the day we die. There will always be that sense of loss. There will always be a measure of grief. There will always be a hurting at the very core of our being because someone we loved has gone. But we don't need to be bound by the death and the loss that we face as Christians we grieve but we do not grieve like those with no hope and so I think there's a message here that we need to allow Christ to set us free the hurt may well still be there but let us not allow that death to define us forever. Because one day, all will be well. One of my best friends at the moment has been given a terminal diagnosis. I worked with her for a number of years and A couple of years ago, she started training for ministry at the Scottish Baptist College. And um, she hadn't long started when she was diagnosed with a serious illness. And ended up having to give up her college, her sense of being called to ministry. And, uh, And again, just recently, the doctors have said there's nothing more they can do for her. She sent me a copy of a sermon that she preached in her home church a few weeks ago. And at the end of it, she was focusing on this little phrase, All shall be well. And she said, All shall be well means that even if I make my bed in hell, God is with me. It means that even if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, God's right hand will uphold me. It means that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death we don't have to be afraid not because nothing bad will happen to us but because God is with us in anything and everything that happens. Somehow everything that happens to us in this life can form and shape and prepare us for the life beyond. And she finishes by saying this is my hope. You can imagine that In her home church, there was not a dry eye in the place. But not wanting to allow death to bind her completely in the remaining months that she has in this life. But realizing that there's a hope, a hope that enables her to die well because of what Christ has done for her. Back to Simon Thomas as we close. A year after Gemma's death he writes As the car lights strike the drive of the house, it lies in darkness once again. The welcoming glow of years gone by remain extinguished. The place of love and warmth her creative soul breathed and crafted now mourns her absence. As the keys turn in the door, the joy of returning home is disturbed by the reality of a place that now lies bereft without her. The kitchen, the room she loved, the room she poured her time and compassion into others' lives, screams at me that she's gone. Everything around you rips at your heart with this one single unpalatable truth she's gone. As I pace the house like a lost soul, my heart cries out for her return, yet my mind shouts, she's not here anymore. The daily nightmare nightmare roars on like an unstoppable avalanche, unthinkable, unmanageable, unfair. Yet amidst the pain, the anger, the questions, and the never-abating agony of loss, the clouds of grief occasionally clear and the God of the universe the God who became man and sat and wept whispers to me that you're going to be okay the everlasting echoes of his hope interrupt and loosen the binding cords of loss it still feels Friday but Sunday is coming John chapter 11. An amazing story, isn't it? There are no simple ways to think about our grief or to deal with our loss. But three observations. It's okay to shout at God, He's big enough to take it, He enters into our pain. And he weeps alongside us. And he's able to release us from the bonds of despair. We might still be hurting, but we will not grieve like those with no hope. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray that you take this message this morning, a message that probably isn't said all it should have said or whatever, but thank you that you are a God who is willing to take whatever we throw at you. Thank you that you are a God who in Jesus weeps with us in the midst of our loss and finds the consequences of death equally as abhorrent as we do. And I pray that as we meditate upon those truths that you will at least begin to set us free from the bandages of death. Lord, we hurt, and we will continue to hurt. But help us to realize that there is a new day coming when one day we will be united with you and those we love forever. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Oh, man.